Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Laurie Calvacina joining us now, the head of U.S. equity strategy at RBC Capital Markets. Laurie, your year end next year, 50-50. Walk us through it. Sure. Look, I, it's all about the numbers for us, John. And before I get into that, let me just tell you, I sympathize with where your head is at. We called our weekly this morning, goodbye to 2021. We're ready for it to be gone. Um, but look, I, I think it's, you know, it's first off the strong economy. Most of our economic modeling is pointing us to an S&P 500 north of 5,100. Then it's looking at stocks versus bonds. At least for another year, I think stocks are still the best game in town. So our models there are pointing us to about an 8% type return. I think where things get interesting is what happens with PE multiples. If you assume a flattish PE, we should be you know, around my target. If you assume some crack contraction based on a more aggressive Fed, and that's a realistic risk in here, um, that does point you to about down 2% on the year on our models. So that would be our worst case scenario. It's a real risk to monitor, but the preponderance of the evidence on the economy, and again, stocks versus bonds, is telling us to look for another good year in stocks. Not as good as what we had this year, though frankly, it felt lousy to get to this return that we've gotten. Um, but I think we'll have another good year next year, but it's going to be a bit harder. It's going to be a bit harder. And you outline how in the first half of the year, you might get an outperformance of the value trades of some of the cyclicals. And in the back end, it's going to be a rotation back into growth. Can you give us a sense of what that means in terms of the ongoing bearishness in terms of economic growth that you see to the second half of the year? So look, it, it, it's not, and you know, I'm sure my economist is kind of shuddering if, if he's hearing this right now, but you know, what we're seeing in 2023 is that if you look where the street economists are forecasting, they're right at around two and a half percent. Now, that's not a recession by any stretch, but it is a deceleration back to trend-like growth. And what we do tend to see is that when markets, and markets, again, are very forward-looking, when we're in a hot economy like we're supposed to be in next year, 4% is basically the number in place for next year by most economists, value small-cap cyclicals tend to outperform. But when you move back down to trend-like growth or below trend-like growth, that's when those more defensive parts of the market, like large-cap secular growers and the growth trade itself, tend to outperform. And we think at some point in the middle of next year, we're going to see markets start to focus on 2023 and be done with 2022. And once that happens, we'll probably be well into Fed rate hikes. And that also tends to be a trigger to get you away from those cyclical trades and back towards the growth trades. Wishing time away, Laurie. Let's dwell on the here on the now for our radio audience. You've got a beautiful backdrop. Santas are coming oh, into your house. I love the name. <laughs> My son's called Leo too, and you've got one for Leo and your family. <laughs> I'm interested in the Santa rally or lack thereof. Talk to us at the very end of 2021, even though there's but this week left, according to John Farrow. Are you expecting value to still stabilize as it did last week a little bit towards the end? It's a great question, Caroline. And we've said in the very near term, if you're trying to trade now through December 31st, we just stay balanced on everything. Uh, look, I think Omicron is really, at the end of the day, a threat to the value trade. And while the little dribs and drabs of news we've been getting have helped stabilize the value trade, ultimately, if we do see case counts worsen, that actually all year has portended outperformance by things like growth, large cap, and secular, more defensive positioning. But the problem we have right now is that the Fed in this more hawkish tilt that we're all of a sudden having to digest is really a threat to the growth trade because that's where the expensive valuations are. And when we're in hiking periods, expensive stocks tend to underperform um, when rates are rising. Um, and so we really think 
think that that's we're sort of caught between a rock and a hard place over the next couple of weeks. Laurie, just build on that a little bit, because what we've seen, and Credit Suisse have pointed this out, that the expectations for higher rates at the Fed haven't translated into higher yields yeah. and that hasn't hurt the multiple. Can you walk me through the relationship between Fed rate hike expectations and multiples on the S&P that you expect to evolve through next year? So, look, I think the multiple question is a very, very challenging one. And I know that there are some of my peers out there in the strategy world who are saying, hey, Fed rate hikes always produce contraction. We got to bake that in for next year. And I actually don't think it's quite that simple, John. We're starting to see P.E. multiples compress at the individual stock level. If you look at the Russell 2000, if you even look at the median stock in the S&P. But we've seen a very kind of flattish move um, on the overall top-down numbers. And I'll just take you back to the fact that we're still in this QE world. And, yes, the tapering is coming. It's more aggressive than expected. Um, but the Fed balance sheet has really kind of distorted what happens with P.E. multiples recently. If you expect sort of a flattish balance sheet over the next uh, year or so, what that should tell you is that we should have a flattish P.E. multiple. It's really when you get into quantitative tightening and you contract and you contract the balance sheet, that's what the recent Wait. history is telling us should cause the contraction and the multiple. So it's just very complicated right now. Lori, this is a really important point and goes to the idea that we heard out of, uh, out of Seth Carpenter from Morgan Stanley over the weekend, that the Fed is not willing to go to quantitative tightening too quickly because they do not understand the effect on yeah. markets to the same degree. Are you saying that that's had a bigger effect in propping up equity valuations and on the flip side would have a bigger effect on the downside if they were to start to withdraw that liquidity than even rate hikes or anything else? So let's go back to, you know, John and my, frankly, desire for this year to just be over. Um, if you go back to 2018, I remember I was on vacation at the time that last week of the year, I thought I could take vacation. And we had just a ridiculous downdraft in the equity market. A lot of holidays were ruined. Um, a lot of portfolios were ruined in that last week of the year. But what we were dealing with back then uh, was the kind of two threats, right? It was a threat to growth from the trade war, and it was a tighter Fed that we were actually pricing in quantitative tightening. So that's really, you know, it's not in my base case. It's not even on my forecast horizon, but that is sort of a dire scenario that, you know, frankly, will keep me up at night on, on some of the nights where I'm, you know, letting my mind race. Um, but look, I think at the end of the day, quantitative easing, quantitative tightening, this is all a new tool, right? But what I can tell you, Lisa, is that since 2014, the year-over-year -year trend in the Fed balance sheet has really dovetailed very nicely with the year-over-year -year trend in the PE multiples in the market. Um, so it is having an impact. And I sympathize you know, with, with those who say they don't quite understand what the unwind is going to do. But what I can tell you is that the Fed has propped up PE multiples through the balance sheet. Laurie, magnificent as always. And great to catch up with you. Thank you for everything you've done for us this year. Been great to work with you. Laurie Calvacina there of RBC on this equity market. She wants the year done. Mike Collins joins us now, Senior Portfolio Manager for Pigeon Fixed Income. Mike, I promised we'd get to this call at the front end. You think that maybe we've seen the peak of yields at the front end and at the long end on tens as well. Mike, just walk us through the framework of Pigeon right now. When you all get around the table together, how you explain this? Yeah, Jonathan, again, it's looking at the long-term view, right? And everybody's so caught up on this growth surge and on this inflation surge. And we've done a lot of work on this. And when you really peel it back, it's been more demand-driven than supply-driven, right? If you look at supply of stuff that's being made around the world and being shipped, it's higher in many places, in many cases, uh, than pre-COVID. But the demand has jumped like 20%, especially for goods, for durable goods, for imports. 
that demand is going to come down, right? That big jump in the savings rate we saw last year with all the fiscal stimulus, all the helicopter money, that has already been spent. It's gone, right? So what's going to happen going forward as the fiscal stimulus really retrenches, notwithstanding these infrastructure and BBB packages, which I think are just really non-events in terms of their economic impact. It was the helicopter money sending people cash last year that really jumped spending, and that is going away, right? So, so the supply-demand imbalance is going to come back into balance over the next 12 months. So that's really the, the big picture. And the Fed, though, right, is kind of trapped or they pin themselves in the corner. They're going to hike rates because they see these headline numbers. So the front end is selling off. The back end is, is flattening, which happens every time you get a Fed rate hiking cycle. So I think the curve is going to continue to the point where it's totally flat. But that's already priced in. If you look at the one-year note, Jonathan, in two years from now, which is reflected in the three-year yield, not to sound too wonky on a Monday morning, but that's at 162, 1.62%. The 10-year note, 10 years forward, is at 1.62%. So the market is already priced in a totally flat curve, which is ultimately what will happen when the Fed's done hiking. Michael, you're talking about an idea that a lot of people disagree about, that you're going to see inflation come down enough that can justify the Fed's patience. How can you see uh, their rhetoric this Wednesday kind of confirming that if, say, they do accelerate the taper, as they're expected to do, and continue to talk about uncertainty? You know, they're, they're not being patient, right? That's why the front end is getting killed here. I mean, 230s, this cycle just earlier this year peaked at around 230 basis points. I always look at 30s because, you know, we are, you know, manage a lot of long term money for insurance companies, pension plans. They live in that 30 year space, not like retail investors. That was at 230. It's at 115 today. It's been cut in half. So it's halfway to zero, right? And it will get to zero. But again, uh, that's already priced in. The Fed has turned really hawkish. Uh, they're getting really aggressive. They're going to accelerate their taper. They're probably going to pull forward and accelerate rate hikes. But ultimately, what's priced into that 10-year note and the 20-year note is, is where that funds rate is going to average over the next 10 years. And yeah, on average, it's probably going to be 1% or less. They're going to get it to one and a half. Maybe they overshoot and get it to two or two and a quarter this cycle. But sometime in the next 10 years, Lisa, it's going to be back to zero, right? So on average, it's going to bounce around between zero and two, and it's going to average one or probably even less, which puts, you know, 10-year notes at reasonable value here. Michael, are you pricing in at all the risk that they might have to be more patient? I'm here in England where the Bank of England was really hawkish, and now they're not. Yeah, I mean, Caroline, good morning. That's that's the risk, right? There's so much so many priced in in the front end now, basically, you know, three next year and and three in 2023. That's a lot. Right. That's a Fed that's really moving, moving for two plus straight years. Right. I mean, that's a lot. That's a long time to try to price in and figure out what the economy is going to look like what inflation is going to look like and what COVID is going to look like. So you're, you're right. One of the risks right now, I think the hawkish scenario has kind of been priced in with this really flat forward curve. But, but the risk is that you do get a big drop in activity over the next six and 12 months. And that inflation comes down a little more quickly than people think. And the Fed and other central banks say, uh-oh, we're not going to be able to hike three times a year. Uh, let's pull that back. And then the curve you know, bull, bull steepens, right? And, and we're not really ideally positioned for that. We're in the flattener, uh, which has been working like crazy 
Uh, but we're starting to cover some of that in because we are concerned about that risk that the Fed isn't able to hike six times, which is a pretty, pretty high probability for sure. Mike, you always get me thinking. It's always great to catch up with you, sir. Michael Collins there of PGM. Mike, you're the best. Thank you, sir. Joining us now is Wei Li, Global Chief Investment Strategist at BlackRock. Wei Li, I wanted to start with China and then we'll work our way back to the United States. But can you give me your read on the Chinese economy following a week where people really started to reset their expectations for a policy shift from the Chinese Communist Party? What's your view on that? Well, what we have seen so far this year is that there is this greater pivot towards social uh, objectives and common prosperity. And that was evidenced in the regulatory clampdown earlier in the year. But what we have also seen this year is that growth is deteriorating from quarter to quarter, from above 17% in Q1 to now below 5% in Q3. And Q4 is looking even worse in terms of the kind of the growth levels. And as a result of the deteriorating growth trajectory, we have been of the view that uh, support will have to ramp up heading into a significant year that is 2022, characterized by the Winter Olympics, characterized by the party Congress. And sure enough, we have seen um, support actually uh, did come through in the form of triple uh, um, R cut, in the form of greater uh, fiscal standing expectations that we continue to think that will be the case as we head into next year, which is why we are modestly constructive on China assets, both on the equity side as well as uh, on fixed income side, CGB. Wait, you are not alone in this. A lot of people have said that there needs to be more accommodation in China because of some of these issues. And yet over the weekend, the Politburo of China came out with rhetoric that was new around the housing market, talking about bringing down uh, pricing because this is a place that people live, not just invested. How much is there sort of a talking out of both sides of the mouth and frankly, a harder line in maintaining the deleveraging stance from the Politburo over the past few weeks? It's a it's a fine balance, isn't it? It's always a dance between this longer term journey of quality revolution, thinking about deleveraging and balancing that with uh, the, the, the near term support. So indeed, we have seen kind of rhetoric pointing to wanting to deliver in the private sector, in the housing market, and also thinking about the resolution of uh, how is it going to look like for Evergrande. But in order to make sure that the, in order to contain the spillover effect from deleveraging activities, growth side needs to be shored up even more, which is why we see easing policy coming through to make sure that the, 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 the way it's happening in the housing market is properly contained within the housing market and does not lead to a broader spillover on the economic uh, more broadly uh, and leading to a broader risk of which is not uh, what we expect heading into next year. Good morning, Weili. I mean, it's great to get your perspective from China moving out to its worldwide impact, of course, as China tries to give some support to its own economy and the equity markets reacted off that earlier. What about the supply chain issues? As Jonathan was just mentioning, we get that first case of Omicron coming into China. Are you worried at any point of the inflationary pressure that we might see once again if indeed the new variant hits China, hits supply chains, hits us in Europe and in the US? 
You are absolutely right in that the uh, um, uh, zero policy, uh, zero tolerance uh, policy in China does mean that uh, Omicron cases popping up in China will have even more kind of significant impact on the supply side, on the economic uh, activity side, which is uh, why we expect uh, on the policy side things will have to come through even more because they would have to kind of shut down on the economic side even uh, more in comparison with their uh, developed market uh, developed market counterpart. Now, in terms of uh, the spillover uh, uh, more broadly and thinking about uh, a kind of policy room, we do see on the inflation side, uh, not too elevated in the case of China, PPI is high, but CPI is still reasonably contained. And that actually does give them room uh, to ease a bit more if needs be. And if you think about uh, versus uh, last year, developed world has really kind of uh, come through with policy revolution, uh, coordination of monetary side, as well as the fiscal side. China has been rather reserved uh, in their policy response, leaving them uh, greater room to, 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 to act. So that, that, that is why our case in China is uh, modestly constructive against the broader backdrop of a very, very low starting allocation to China in global portfolios. Um, but more broadly, thinking about 2022, um, it, we talked about supply side uh, constraint. We do expect that kind of getting alleviated somewhat second half of uh, next year and the combination of still robust growth dynamics as well as the negative real rate environment should continue to support equities. And within equities, we prefer developed market equities over emerging market equities. Well, Lee, within DM. Is there an international bias to that asset allocation, that equity allocation away from the United States or is it towards the US? It's uh, interesting that you should uh, mention that. So our DM equity core has gone through a bit of a journey uh, in 2021. The first half of 2021, we preferred U.S. equities because uh, the restart was way ahead in the U.S. But uh, at the mid-year point, we pivoted from U.S. to European equities as the baton of growth uh, peak ac uh, acceleration shifted from the U.S. Uh, to Europe. And sure enough, this, uh, this differentiated approach to play the uneven pace of restart was also reflected in the fact that difference in earnings, materialized earnings growth in Europe and in the US. The difference is so far this year, almost 15%. But now looking ahead to 2021, the uneven pace of restart is washing uh, through uh, a little bit. And if you look at kind of uh, the earnings uh, expectation difference across uh, US, Europe, Japan, they're not that different, uh, ranging from 12% to 15%. So we're less uh, uh, kind of uh, playing the theme of uneven restart and instead we see actually what I just talked about this combination yeah. of uh, negative real rate and, and dy dynamic kind of uh, growth uh, uh, environment supporting DM equities across the uh, across the board were modestly uh, constructive across DM equities but under that we also want to kind of think about barbelling across cyclical sectors as well as uh, uh, secular growers uh, growers like technology and healthcare. Wiley, always smart. Wiley of BlackRock. On Europe, the international story, China 2 against the United States. And the focus right now on the pandemic. Prime Minister Boris Johnson saying Omicron represents 40% of COVID-19 cases right now in London. And by tomorrow, it will become the dominant strain. Joining us now to discuss is Joshua Sharfstein, Vice Dean at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Joshua, let's start right here. Trust. 
How much trust is there of these politicians delivering these emphatic statements and scaring society? And that's the issue we have right now, isn't it, sir? Who should we trust? And how long do we have to wait to have some data, some numbers that we can trust? Well, I think that, you know, the numbers themselves, how many cases, what percentages are of Omicron, those are true, uh, the governments are saying. Unfortunately, there's some percentage of the population that has tuned everything out. But I think most people realize that this is a new variant, just like Delta was a new variant, and we're going to have to respond accordingly. Given the fact that Omicron is now expected to become the dominant strain in the United Kingdom, as Boris Johnson was outlining this morning, is the uh, third dose, is the booster shot going to be considered required in order to be fully vaccinated? Uh, I think that is becoming a distinct possibility with each study that comes out suggesting actually good news, which is with three shots of the mRNA vaccine, people have a reasonable degree of protection from Omicron. This is not the case of complete escape from the vaccines, but that third dose seems to really help. And that may, in fact, you know, change some of the policies about what's considered fully vaccinated. So far, companies have really led private companies when it comes to setting policy. You see in the United States, a survey of companies actually shows that nearly two thirds of all of them are going to mandate vaccines for their workers, whether or not there is any sort of overarching law about that or policy. How have you seen the discussion changing among private corporations to get that third shot, the booster, as part of the requirement? Well, I think the recognition right now is that to have a safe workplace, which people want, you really can't, you know, open up to Omicron and doing things that are necessary to prevent uh, this virus from getting into the workplace, spreading in the workplace, really wreaking havoc on all the plans that companies have is, um, you know, a priority to doing something to prevent that. So I think that mm. companies are, are looking at the data just like public health officials are looking at the data. And it wouldn't surprise me if they start requiring the third shot. I mean, the third shot is very safe and it protects against Omicron. So it's pretty logical that we could get there. You talk about wreaking havoc in terms of the workplace, wreaking havoc on travel plans ahead of the holidays as well. And I'm seeing, of course, Prime Minister Johnson saying that the UK has a ready supply of COVID lateral flow tests. It's interesting from a cultural perspective coming into the UK, everyone is testing every single day using these lateral flow tests that are being given out on the street or you're into your nearest pharmacy. How is testing distinguishing itself as I'm looking at airlines fighting back against more PCR testing because of the length of wait and the hoops you have to jump and the price tag? What other testing could they do? Well, I mean, they could be doing the antigen testing as well. I mean, I think that we now are at a point where with the virus sticking around and, you know, making itself the unwanted holiday guest, it's really important to have testing, but to integrate testing into our lives. And PCR testing isn't that great for that if you've got to wait an entire day, um, because even if you were negative, something could have happened in the interim. And so these antigen tests offer the opportunity to do things quicker. I don't think we've really figured out completely, particularly with travel, how to integrate it into our routine. Just like, you know, you know, not too many years ago, we integrated all the security stuff into our routine. We have to integrate testing for a while into our routine. And, you know, we're in a little bit of a rocky phase while that gets worked out. 
And this is what everyone from an individual perspective worries about. And it becomes a macro issue if everyone starts to worry. Prime Minister Johnson saying, look, he declines to rule out new COVID curbs before Christmas. It's an important family moment, but it's also an impo important economic moment for spending, for consumer sentiment. How likely are we to see further lockdowns in the United States and worldwide? I don't think we're likely to see, you know, full lockdowns unless we have a situation where there's just an incredible surge in hospitalizations. And, you know, we don't yet have evidence that, that Omicron is going to cause that in highly vaccinated populations. So we are going to have to see um, if that were to happen. And of course, the healthcare system were to come, you know, be at risk, then probably all bets are off on the kind of restrictions that might be necessary, but probably we'll see very, very limited and target, targeted policies to reduce the spread. Um, and, you know, again, it's the uncertainty that gives everyone anxiety, but we are not back in March 2020. We have vaccines that provide protection. We know a lot about the virus. We can find it. We can test for it. So I, I don't think that uh, people have to be so worried they're going to be watching a replay of last year. Doctor, just quickly, how much more time do you need personally to conclude that this is less deadly than previous variants? Well, it really, you know, there, there are a lot of different views out there. Um, I think a very strong argument is we need to see how it behaves in different populations. And so I think when you see, you know, uh, for example, London, when it really does become, you know, the dominant variant, uh, looking at what happens to hospitalizations, I think will give a really uh, good view for the United States um, what the 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 likely um, outcome is. A uh, highly vaccinated population um, getting Omicron spreading around, does that really make people very sick? And we'll find out soon. Joshua, thank you, sir, for catching up. As always, Joshua Shastin there of Johns Hopkins. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for Insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.